go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, EAA Government Relations Director. To my right today is I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. So we're coming to you from a different location, different setup than we normally have uh, on the uh, Green Dot uh, because uh, we're, we got kicked out of the studio. So <laughs> to your right, Chris. I, I, uh, is... I've been kicked out of better places, by the way. So. Uh, I, as I always say, I'm happy to, always excited when we have a guest on the show. And uh, today uh, we have a, a very special guest who's coming up to speak at our uh, speaker series. Uh, one of the curators of the National Museum of the United States Air Force, uh, Jeff Duford. Jeff, uh, Thank you for being here with us. Boy, it's a pleasure and honor to be here, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, the, the uh, National Museum of the U.S. Air Force is uh, when when Chris and I aren't here in Oshkosh is probably our favorite That's museum exactly. in the country. Absolutely. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you kind of how your career path kind of evolved? How you became interested in aviation history and found your way to the Air Force Museum? Well, I think uh, I think I'm among. Uh, the, the same kind of bent as a lot of people listening to this show today. I've just always been interested in airplanes ever since I was a little kid. And I started reading about airplanes when I started reading. And it's always been part of my life. And I'm grateful to my parents. They always bought more books and more books for me. I built model airplanes, uh, and they really supported my interest. And as I was going through school, I, I focused on history. And as I was studying history, I'd hoped to work at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force someday, but didn't really know how that was going to happen. It's, it's only so many positions and, and so on. And so as I finished grad school, I looked at joining the Air Force. And uh, as my application was in, it got delayed. And when it was delayed, I, I looked online, and there happened to be an internship at the then the Air Force Museum, now the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force. And I got the internship, and that was 21 years ago. Um, it, it was uh, really amazing. I'm, I'm really grateful I've had uh, any chance to be part of the field. It's uh, very difficult to get in as a career. And I know there are a lot of people that are interested in aviation, uh, but getting that break uh, kind of makes the difference. Yeah, it's um, funny when you go back to your uh, your your history in aviation because I think it's about the same that that all of us have is is when you're asked you know when did you first start to get interested in aviation the honest answer is I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know most of us are models. Models are uh, books are always a segue into some sort of an aviation career and and uh, unfortunately I'm still bitten by that bug and it's kind of a disease at this point. I can't give up models so. Yeah, as, as many of you listening know how that is. So, um, you know, one of the questions I had as you go around a museum the size of the Air Force Museum, um, how do you decide on a certain example? I mean, let, let's say you want to you want to get a uh, an F-16, you know, for the for the collection. Uh, is there how do you how do you decide which F-16 to pick? That is a great question. It, it's there's no typical example. There are many variables in deciding on what aircraft is included in the collection. We do have some idea of what we would like to bring in, even if it might not exist at the time or might not be available at the time. We have a very clear idea of what story we want to tell. So an airplane coming into the collection might be something that uh, comes in out of the blue. So I think a good example of that would be, at least for the staff, would be the bird of prey. That uh, was a classified vehicle. 
Most of us had no idea that it existed because we didn't have a need to know, but that was a made available to the museum. And of course, we, we brought that into the collection. In other cases, there are holes that are in the collection and the way that we fill those might be to build a reproduction. And so an example of that would be the MB-2, which is a significant biplane bomber used during the uh, Mitchell battleship bombing trials, and no MB-2s exist. So the only way that we could have one in the museum would be to have one built. And of course, it's built from original plans, has Liberty engines and, and some original pieces, of course, but it is a reproduction. In the case of something like an F-16, or another good example would be an F-4, you have a type of airframe that's used for many different missions. So we have to be careful about space in spite of the museum being so large. Sometimes we have airframes that have to do double duty. So in, in a good example, that would be our F-100F. It's a two-seat version of the F-100 Super Sabre. And uh, we use that in the Southeast Asia War Gallery to tell not only the story of F-100F fast facts, but we also use that to tell the story of single-seat F-100D air crews that were flying uh, air-to-ground missions. So we really don't have a formula. It's a judgment call based on a lot of different variables, including significance, uh, the ability to get an airframe, and the space that we have available. Well, you have a very, very complete collection, I, I have to say. I mean, uh, and, and when he says it's large, he means it. Um, you, for those of you not familiar with the Air Force Museum, I'm pretty sure you could honestly fit all of EAA headquarters, including our offices and our museum, into a single exhibit gallery <laughs> at the Air Force Museum, and they have four of them. Yeah. So it's a, it's a massive, massive complex. Um what, what do you think is the most interesting um, artifact in the museum? I know that's kind of like picking your favorite kid, but uh, is, is, there, is there anything that, uh, that really kind of, um, uh, I don't know, captures your imagination or has your interest at the, well, that's at the current a, time? <clears throat> that's a hard question. I'm completely biased. If I absolutely had to pick one, I would say it's the B-17F Memphis Bell. But since I worked on it for many years, um, I, I could definitely be accused of bias. But that really is a, a special artifact. And the reason why it's so special is because that is a true, one, one of a handful of true American icons. It is an American icon, larger than the much larger than the museum, because it, it represents the same values of service and sacrifice that other American icons do, like the flag that was raised on Mount Suribachi on Iwo Jima, or like the battleship Arizona at Pearl Harbor. Those are things that, you know, when you look at them, and you look at that picture of the Marines raising the flag, you know what that means. It means service and sacrifice. And icons are symbols of those things. And the Memphis Bell is for the Air Force and for the heavy bomber crews. The Memphis Bell is that iconic symbol of their service and their sacrifice. Um, so if I had to pick one object, if you're forced to, <laughs> I, I think that's what I would pick. Well, I'd, you know, we, um, Chris was, of course, part of the unveiling of the uh, of the of the or the ceremonies of, of the unveiling of the Memphis Bell, and um, and uh, a couple more of us were uh, were there for that. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably uh, one of the crowning achievements in terms of the field of restoration and uh, and the way that it's presented and and everything and, and the significance of the artifact, of course. Definitely. 
I, everybody that's listening knows I'm a B-17 guy, so uh, <laughs> I've got no rebuttal for that. So I <laughs> uh, completely agree. And what an honor uh, it was, as we talked before, to just be a small sliver of the events happening down there and the unveiling. I mean, it, you, you felt like you were, you were a, a part of history when that aircraft was getting unveiled. And I'm sure you have to feel that way that, um, I mean, it, 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 like we talked about earlier, it's like, restoring something like the spirit of st louis it's only going to happen you know once this type of restoration on this aircraft uh you had to go home every night with sort of a sense of like i can't believe i'm doing this yeah i i don't um i don't know that i still really understand um the whole project there was so much that had to be done but what one thing that was overriding for me and for many of the staff that worked on the bell was a sense of responsibility and that we absolutely had to do the very best that we could and and um it's a cliche but failure was not an option and and for me personally and i um i know that some of the guys who worked on the airplane felt the same way too i always felt like the crew was watching over us and their voices have been extinguished for many years now and we had to be the voices for them so I always felt like the crew was with us and looking over us as we were working. And anytime we ran into situations where it was very difficult or, or going to be really hard to push through, um, I always thought about what they went through. And whatever we did was nothing, you know, was absolutely nothing compared to what they and the other heavy bomber crews did. So we, we felt a tremendous uh, sense of responsibility in making sure that we, we restored the aircraft correctly, accurately, and that uh, we presented the airplane in a fashion that it deserved. But, and I think I think for a lot of World War II uh, aficionados, one war historians, B-17 buffs, uh, I think the amount of research that you guys put into the, to the aircraft really has set the bar for future restorations and future research as far as getting it right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that the, the museum allowed us to to use the resources to do that research because with many of the restorations the information is out there it's a question of having the time and having the resources to go find the source material and because we took more than a decade to restore the aircraft uh, we were given the resources to go out to boeing we made several trips to the national archives at college park and i also cannot say enough about the the support that we got from the folks down in Memphis, and particularly Dr. Harry Friedman and uh, Graham Simons out in the UK, you know, we all wanted the same thing. We all wanted the airplane to be properly restored and put on public display in a place that would preserve it and in a place where millions of people could see the airplane and read the story of the crewmen. So we had many people that were all pulling in the same direction. And... Um, it's uh, the resources are there. It's a question of time and, and being able to go out and get them. Absolutely. Well, we had Dr. Freeman on the podcast um, a couple of months ago. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, he had nothing but great things to say for uh, the way that, that the project was handled by the Air Force Museum. And um, I, I can just say for myself and, and, uh, and, and Chris, you were, you were there with us a couple of years ago when we, when we saw the restoration, I think, you know, well before paint well before I think the engines were even hung uh, and the, the, just the work and care that was being put into that. I mean, there's, there's many different levels to do a restoration. It could be anything from just a very cursory, you know, 
cleanup and paint job uh, to, you know, an extremely thorough and well-researched effort. And this was obviously the latter. Yeah, I think, and, and another point too is it, it doesn't matter how good the research is or how accurate it is. If it's not executed properly, then it, that all that knowledge it's gained is completely wasted. And I've said this many times over, the, the, the craftsmen that are in the restoration division at the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force are absolutely phenomenal. And the, the work that they did is impeccable. And I've, I've worked with some of the staff down there for more than two decades, and they never cease to amaze me what they're able to do. And so the, the research that was done was executed impeccably, and, and it was also a two-way street. The, the restoration craftsmen saw things in the airplane that the uh, research curators couldn't possibly see. So they also contributed to a better understanding of the aircraft how it should be configured, how it should be marked. Good example, it's just a little minor point, but it's, it's, it's about accuracy. The national insignia on the left fuselage of the Memphis Bell was applied crooked. It's in the images, it's in photos, it's in the outtake footage from the film. I didn't notice that, but one of the restoration craftsmen did and pointed that out and said, hey, it's, you know, it was crooked. You can look at the rivet line, and it certainly was. So when the airplane was painted that national insignia is crooked as it should be, as it was on the airplane. But that's because of the a restoration craftsman noticing that. Wow. Yeah, we talked about that with Dr. Friedman as well, the, uh, yeah, the crooked star. And, and yeah, that, just that level of detail of, uh, of the airplane coming back from its, from its final mission. So what's next? How do you, how do you prioritize um, how, you know, what, what gets a restoration, what gets the re- resources of the museum, what you, what you focus that energy on? Uh, that's another example where there's a lot of variables. It depends on what's coming in, what galleries we're working on, and so on. The The big project that we're working on now is uh, celebrating the anniversary of D-Day. 75th anniversary of D-Day is coming up. And we're working with a company in France to put out an exhibit that's an immersive exhibit. It's something we've never done before. We've never had it at the museum. It's uh, really going to be something special. It's going to open on May 13th. And there will be a, a C-47 that will come and drop paratroopers on the museum's grounds. And the exhibit itself, you, you get an immersive experience as if you're a paratrooper on D-Day, from going to a briefing room to going through the drop to experiencing some of the things that the paratroopers did in St. Mary Glees, um on D-Day. So that's kind of our big push right now. And then um, down the road, we're looking at what airframes we'll be working on next. We have an Avro 504K that's in restoration right now. And we just put an A-10 on display out on the museum's ground. So our backlog is probably, I'm guessing here, probably something in the area of about 100 years. So we've got lots of different projects to choose from, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, so we'll, we'll talk about my favorite battle that we have out there uh i of course you know i'm on the museum staff here some of our aircraft are flyable some are not um you know some people have i guess a criticism of static museums for not flying their aircraft um you know and i know the air force museum doesn't uh obviously fly their aircraft how do you how do you view i guess that critique you know it that's that is a legitimate and reasonable um question to ask. And 
I've long felt that oftentimes that question is framed not by you, but by others on either side of the debate as a, as a, a question that has or. It's this or that. I don't see it as or. I see it as and. There's, there's a place for static displays, and there's a place for flying aircraft. There's a place for both. Each has their strengths, and each has their limitations or their weaknesses. In the case of static displays, it's very likely, as long as the institution is sound and, and has professional staff and um, is a strong organization, it's a reasonable assumption that an aircraft on static display is still going to be around 100 years from now. So that would be one of the pluses. Also, too, uh, an aircraft that's on static display does not require the same type of or, or amount of modification. So you can preserve non-functioning equipment rather than have to replace that equipment. And also it doesn't have to be modified to fly, which some aircraft do uh, have to in some cases. So that would be the strengths in my mind of, say, a, a museum aircraft. The downside is you don't get the joy of seeing that vehicle in its, in its natural environment. You don't get to hear the sounds. You don't get to see it moving, and that certainly has, has a lot of worth. So in the case of the flying aircraft, you know, you get that excitement. The downside is that sometimes they have to be modified, and then, of course, there's always the risk that they could crash. So I, for me personally, I think there's a place for both. I love going to air shows. I love seeing the aircraft flying. I think the only time that I have um, any reservations personally is when I see a, a truly historic, one-of-a-kind aircraft flying. I'm just a little uncomfortable because I think it's, um, you know, it's basically risking the opportunity for people for generations to come to see and experience that. And if it should crash, that then that's instantly wiped out. So I think a good example would be something like, would, we, would it be responsible to fly the Spirit of St. Louis? Probably not. You know, but there are airframes where there are many examples of them around, um, you know, Aside from the fact of the safety of the of the pilots or the air crew, no one would want, would want to see anyone get hurt. That's much more important than any airframe. But in the case of examples where there are many available in, in existence, I think it's great. And um, so I think there's a place for both. And so it's not a it's not an or argument. It's an and argument. Yeah, that was one of the things um, we also discussed um, on the last podcast with Dr. Friedman was um, you know, basically that re- restorations like the Memphis Bell let groups like EAA, you know, we fly our B-17. Um, you know, if, if aluminum overcast was the only B-17 in the world, that would be a different conversation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, so I guess one of the questions is, is Tom and I have both been down – uh, to take part in the different festivities you've had around the Doolittle Raiders uh, uh, reunions. Um, with the last Doolittle Raider passing, Dick Cole passed, you know, last week, um, how does that mission sort of change of honoring their memory? Did, does it change at all for you guys? Is there something different to do? Um, but uh, you, had, you had several great events down there uh, that we, we were lucky enough to attend. Yeah, there's there's still a place to celebrate what those young men did, those 80 young men. Um, we have a large permanent exhibit on about the Doolittle Raid with many original artifacts, and so that is a permanent display, so that will remain as it is uh, for the indefinite future. 
But I would see probably on the significant anniversaries, I'm sure that we will mark those in some fashion. I love the exhibit with the B-25 and, and you have the goblets there. I mean, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful display if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I think um, I've, I've been through there. We actually, we um, were at the, uh, well, as we, as we discussed with, um, uh, with Jeff Thatcher, we were uh, at the final toast yeah. um, a couple of, uh, couple of years ago um, on that. So I was just um, curious, how often, you know, we've got, you've got the, uh, the various galleries, and I, I just have to say the galleries are laid out so well in, in the way that they tell the story, like uh, the World War II gallery in particular, you start with the aircraft that basically started the war for the, uh, for the Americans, uh, you know, one of the aircraft that actually flew on Pearl Harbor, uh, and ends with Boxcar, the last, uh, basically the last combat action of, of World War II for, uh, for, for the U.S. Air Force. Um, how, how often do you, um, do you change that, uh, the layout of a gallery? Uh, how do you decide to do that? Um, uh, how do you, how do you, how, how do you lay out the gallery and how often do you, um, do you kind of change things up? I am so happy to hear you say that because <laughs> the way that the galleries are laid out goes back about 16 years and the museum, uh, as of about 2001, 2002 was really kind of, the aircraft collection was jumbled up. And so as they had built new buildings, they added airplanes to those buildings. And thankfully, the, air, the leadership of the museum at the time said, okay, we're going to clean sheet because we're going to build this new building, which is now our Cold War gallery, and we're going to clean sheet the museum. So let's set it the way we, we want to set it. So the thinking was to organize the museum much like a national art museum would be organized. So a National Art Museum would have, there would be a Greek gallery, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, French Impressionists, and so on and so forth. So another thought was that we would have each of the major areas contained within one hangar. So World War II would be in one hangar. Korea would be in one hangar. Vietnam would be in one hangar. And that you could lift up any one of those galleries, and those could be a museum unto themselves. So each gallery, we attempted to have bookends. So in the case of World War II, you've noticed the bookend is Pearl Harbor and, and the dropping of the atomic bombs. In another gallery, for instance, if you go to the Cold War gallery, if you look to the right when you walk in, you see this huge B-36 with this 230-foot wingspan, huge airplane. To your left is a B-2. So those are bookends of the Cold War. At the beginning of the Cold War, the B-36 was the Air Force's global strike aircraft. And at the end of the Cold War, the Air Force's global strike aircraft was the B-2. So the, the galleries are organized in that fashion. And then another element to laying out the aircraft, when we worked on the big move in 2002-2003 where nearly all of the collection moved all but maybe about five aircraft move and again that's a testament to the skill and talent of our restoration staff they did all of it including the hanging aircraft they they're amazing so we did not start out with what airplanes do we have we did not start out with what space do we have we started out by putting together a 20 plus page outline of the air force's history and then we made the airplanes fit it. So there is a story that goes through the entire museum. Now, with the museum having 19 acres under roof, we don't have exhibitry in all of these areas. I wish that we could, but of course, the, it's a huge space. But 
there is a story, coherent story, that runs through that entire museum from the very first airplane in the first gallery from the Wright Brothers reproduction all the way to the last airplane that's in the, uh, the museum's new building, which is opened in 2016. It's a matter of populating these areas with exhibitry. But, for instance, in the World War II gallery, it starts out with defensive in the Pacific, and then it goes through various sections, training, uh, the Mediterranean Theater, um, the Memphis Bell is in a section on Europe, but the last section of the museum is the offensive in the Pacific. So the entire museum is literally laid out to an outline, a story, um, and that's what we started with. It's funny you even met, you mentioned that because it just dawned on me that you have the B-25, the, the, the Doolittle Raiders B-25 is, is pretty early on That's right. in that exhibit because that was you know pretty much the first offensive yep. action we took. Yep, and that was the, the period basically – um, the defensive period in the Pacific, and because yeah. um, that's where it fits. So, and then when we bring aircraft in, we we put them in the appropriate place in the galleries, and that's that's where it gets challenging. Is when we have something that really needs to be in a certain place in the museum, so we can keep keep that story intact. And again, that's where our restoration staff comes in. It's very easy for us to to move these things around as cutouts on a piece of paper. Uh, we also have scale models of every gallery in the museum and all the airplanes that we have in the museum. The earlier's gallery aircraft are in 148th scale because they're pretty small. All the rest of the aircraft are in 172nd scale. So we have sort of proof of concept when we lay the uh, aircraft out. We don't just do it digitally with CAD. We do it physically with scale models. But again, it's, it's very easy for me to move around a 172nd scale model of a B-36 but our guys in restoration are the ones who have to actually physically move it. I, I have a story about that. Uh, <laughs> I, was a, I was a volunteer at the Air Force Museum, very proudly. And uh, when the new building was, I guess, about halfway up, the B-36 got moved out of the old hangar that it was in and being prepped to get put into the new hangar. Um, so I uh, was, we would drive from Pittsburgh and volunteer uh, one weekend a month. And uh, the one weekend we were there, and the B-36 was in the place that it always had been. And the next weekend, uh, we were sitting at the desk, and somebody says, uh, "Do you have a B-36?" And we're like, "Yeah, it's in the you know it's in the hangar over there." And the guy comes back, and he goes, "Yeah, there's no B-36 in there." And uh, so for about ten minutes, we'd lost the B-36. We always would joke, you know, because we're like, <laughs> "How did you lose a bomber the size of a football field?" You know, and we're like, "We." We did, and we didn't realize it had been shoved outside, you know, and we're like, oh, it's outside the doors. <laughs> yeah, like, we didn't realize they moved it outside. So you got to read your briefing sheets when you'd start every morning. <laughs> to, to, to put that in context, that B-36 was so big that when they built that building in the early 70s, they built most of the building, moved the B-36 in, and then finished the rest of the building. So they had to figure out a way... How do we get out of They had to cut through these huge I-beams, brace the end of the building, and then there was a six-foot clearance on either side of the wingtips of this 200, actually, I'm sorry, five-foot clearance on either side of this 230-foot wingspan. So then they had to figure out a way to get the wingtips off, but even then it was still very, very tight. And the uh, chief of restoration was a, was a man with the weight of the world on his shoulders at the time. Uh, but again, it was done safely and um, aircraft wasn't damaged, um, so one of about 270 airplanes that moved. Wow. Chris, you have a funny story about um, when somebody asked you where the B-2 was oh. one time. So uh, when, when the Cold War first opened, uh, um, there was a time where the, the, uh, 
the B2 area was roped off, but there was no B2. Um, and I don't know if you remember that time period or not, but uh, prior to the B2 coming in, they had had the signage up, they had the bars up, but there wasn't a B2 there. Um, and you would, we would usually joke around because people would ask, like, well, where is it? You know, and I'd say, well, you know, it, it's, it's over in restoration, it's being finished. And uh, sometimes we would joke around and we'd say, like, well, you know, it, it's right there, you just can't see it, you know, and, and they would kind of, you know, laugh. Well, the one day I, I told the guy, I said, well, it's in, you know, it's in restoration. And he says, well, it's a brand new airplane. Why would you need to restore it? And I says, well, you know, and I, I just made a joke, you know, and I, and I said, well, they're taking the hyperjets out of it, you know. And before I could even tell this guy I was joking, he's, he just belted out, I knew we had that technology, and he ran <laughs> off in a different direction. <laughs> so somewhere out there, if you ever encounter a guy who, who thinks that there are hyperjets, uh, I'm sorry, Jeff. <laughs> so, so you're the guy that started all of this. <laughs> all right. Noted. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, one of the questions I, I, I'd like to ask is, and, and Tom uh, sort of thought about it here, is, you know, how do you basically freeze an airplane? Um, how do you pick a time frame that you want to lock in an airplane at? You know, no matter what airplane it is, you know, the markings and, and, and configuration changes over the time of its career. Um, so how did, you know, how do you pick, like Memphis Bell, how do you, how do you pick, like, this is where we're going to stop at and how it's going to be painted. Yeah, that's uh, it's uh, carefully considered, and it's dependent on a lot of variables. I'll use the Memphis Bell as an example, and then there are lots of other examples. But in the case of the Memphis Bell, we looked at what was the most significant moment in the artifact's history, and do we have the ability to configure and market accurately? Is there evidence? And in the case of the Memphis Bell, we felt that the most significant moment in the artifact's history was shortly after the 25th mission, either right after they landed or within a week of them landing from their last mission. In the case of the Bell, it's kind of muddy because the crew finished their 25th mission on May 17th, or the, the core crew finished their 25th mission on May 17, 1943, but that was the aircraft's 24th mission. And for the life of me, I don't know why they did it, but they sent the Memphis Bell on yet another mission because it was the airplane's 24th mission on May 17th. And it flew a mission to Kiel on May 19th, and they'd already had the designated airplane shot down a month before, Invasion 2. There was another airplane that was picked, but they were shot down over Bremen on April 17th. So I don't know why they risked the airplane, but they did with an entirely different crew. But fortunately, it made it back, as we all know. But the there's a lot... There was a lot of evidence, or is a lot of evidence, of how the Memphis Bell looked at that time. A lot of that has to do with the outtakes or the stock footage that was shot by William Wyler's film crew. There's 11 and a half hours of footage that's preserved at the National Archives. So we were able to mark and configure the airplane as it appeared shortly after the 25th mission. Now, that is not the appearance that most of us are familiar with with the Memphis Bell. What most of us are familiar with are the air, airplane with what we've come to call the publicity markings. And so essentially what happened two, three weeks after the Bell finished its 25th mission, the public affairs folks got a hold of it, and they started adding markings, names. They put eight, eight swastikas underneath the, bomb, the row of bombs on the nose on both sides and so on. And that's an important part of the story, but we address that in the exhibit that's around the airplane. Now, in the case of some other aircraft, we, there are issues with configuration, so, and are the markings original to begin with? So 
Um, a good example of a configuration issue would be our B-57 bomber. Our B-57 bomber, a Canberra, was a medium jet bomber. Ours was used in Southeast Asia as a bomber. But when it came back to the States, it was modified as a, an electronic aircraft to be used to help train uh, Air Defense Command interceptors. And so they changed the nacelles and they added these large generators and filled the bomb bay full of electronic equipment. And that's the, there's a good story with that aircraft, but, but the significant part of that aircraft's history was during Southeast Asia. So we had the technical order of how to convert a B-57 bomber into an EB-57, so it was a matter of going in reverse. And so there was a configuration change, and we were able to get an appropriate Bombay, uh, Canberra Bombay. So in that case, it was a configuration issue. But each airplane is different. In some cases, we just don't have good evidence. And, and it's a, the evidence just doesn't exist. You know, ideally, we have imagery because uh, just because markings are put some way in a technical order doesn't mean they were applied that way. They were done incorrectly from time to time and so on. So each restoration is a case-by-case -case judgment based on a lot of different factors, including their configuration, what kind of evidence is there, and also are we able to obtain or make some of the systems or weapons or, or loadouts that would be appropriate for that time period. The, I, one, the, okay, one, the one big challenge, uh, and I'm sure I'm, I'm uh, uh, not surprising you with this, the swoos has to be a, a giant challenge for that because of the different lives that this aircraft has led. And yeah, the fact that it's the only one. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there's no question. I think uh, Herbert Brownstein, who wrote literally the book on the Swoos, uh, a curator and researcher at the National Air and Space Museum, he, when he, in his section where he talks about markings and configuration and about making that choice, he comes right out and says there is no way to do that 100% accurately. And I, I completely agree with him. It's basically what it comes down to is in the end, when that airplane is restored, it will be a choice. And there are nine distinct different periods for the swoos as far as how it was configured and how it was marked. And each one has its own issues. You know, some of the challenges with the swoos are that the, um, the in internal parts of the airplane are not complete. Uh, not all of, all of that still exists. Um, the inboard wings are from a B, from a B-17B. So if it was restored anything earlier, that was 1944 that that was replaced in a major overhaul. Anything pre-1944, then that would not be 100% accurate. But because the internals are not complete, there's no way to completely restore it accurately in the interior. And there's a lack of uh, photographic documentation of the interior of the aircraft. Once it stopped being a bomber in the early part of the war, and the in internals were be began to be modified to be the armed transport for General Brett, once that began, there's very little evidence about what that looked like. There, there is some visual evidence when... Uh, um, later, President Johnson, then uh, Lieutenant Commander Johnson, flew in it. Uh, we got that from the Johnson Library. There's some information about how it looked externally, 
Um, apparently, it was painted in uh, Royal Australian Air Force colors for a period. But again, each one of those nine different, dis- distinctly different moments in the aircraft's history, there's a real problem with documentation. So um, you know, it happens with some restorations, and, and the, only th- the only real um, option is, is to make some educated guesses. In a perfect world, those educated guesses are done in such a, such a way that they are reversible. So if somebody down the line says, well, you, you people missed this or this wasn't available, it can be reversed. So something, a good example would be if, if um, the way that it's painted. You know, if, uh, if, if something is painted, paint can be taken off. So that can be reversed. So that's another consideration when we restore aircraft. If we're not sure, we ideally want to do it in such a way that it can be reversible if more information comes down the line. And by the way, uh, those of you um, listening who can't figure out what we're talking about, the Swoos is the only, it's the oldest B-17 in existence. It's a D model? That's right. Okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so it's the, o- it's the only um, what's called shark tail B-17 in existence. That's the, uh, the very early models that had a different tail configuration. Uh, they were flown in pretty much exclusively in the Pacific and were phased out pretty quickly uh, early war. But it's, uh, it's a very important piece of history. And it has such an extensive history. It's probably the reason why it's still around. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, I, I, I've got uh, kind of a, a question I want to ask. Uh, I want to kind of go around the table with this one. Um, what aircraft or artifact that's been lost to history uh, do you wish you had? And I'll ask Chris the same question. What do you wish uh, uh, the museum had? Um, gosh, there's so many. You know, I'm, um, I'm thinking of ones that actually did exist. Um, not theoretically, but there was... Um, there was a DH-4 that was went on a flight to Alaska, which was significant at the time. It was 1920, and that was a significant achievement, flying to Alaska. And that did exist. It was at right field, but it was put outside, and it was destroyed. Uh, and it's, it was not the fault of, of the people who made those decisions because there was a war to be fought. Um, but that was something that was, was being preserved that I wish that we had back. Um, I think, uh, or maybe some of the air racers, some of the Army Aircraft air racers would have been, um, would have been pretty neat. Um, there's some aircraft that have been destroyed in combat. I, you know, if there was, I guess I'm rephrasing the question a little bit. If, if we could teleport back in time to early 1946 or late 1945 when the airplanes were coming back, and to make absolutely sure that record copies of significant Axis aircraft mm. and significant and noteworthy American aircraft, that um, I wish there was some way that we could. It's a miracle that what's been preserved has been preserved because it's so much was lost and so much of what was preserved sat outside, even at national what later became National Museums, just because that's the way that it was. So... There's, there's been far more preserved than, in, than one might expect. The Bells was very close to being destroyed. It's really a miracle, and, and a lot of it has to do with the folks in Memphis 
regardless of the, of the fact that the airplane sat outside for 30 years, that wasn't unusual for the time. So um, I guess I can't make a choice. No, no. <laughs> Chris, what do you got? Oh, my. So first off, my favorite was saved, and that is the Memphis Bell. I, I don't think anybody here uh, second guesses uh, or whatever even – Bach it if I say, like, the Memphis Bell's my favorite. But he's like, yeah, we just kind of figured that. Um, my favorite, what I would love to have seen saved that wasn't, I guess uh, the two that it rang uh, ring out for me that would, you know, would have been cool to walk into our museum or the Air Force Museum and see it saved were uh, Gentile's P-51 that he piled up, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, buzzing the field. It was called Shangri-La. Uh, cool, cool airplane, fourth yeah. fighter group, had cool markings and a sort of a scroll of all those kills on it, and the eagle with the boxing gloves. Um, and somehow, if, if we could have saved the original Marge, you know, Richard Bong's uh, uh. P-38, uh, I think that would have been – I couldn't imagine, again, walking into a museum and, and seeing that. I think that would be up there. Those two would be up there with Flak Bait or Memphis Bell, certainly. So, yeah, um, yeah those would be my two choices. Yeah, that, those are two good choices. Okay, so I'm, I'm – I'm I'm more into like the more obscure and weird stuff. So um, I lived with you. I know. <laughs> uh, mine is the uh, is, is is the B thirty two Dominator. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just because uh, like I didn't even know until relatively recently that there was a contemporary to the B twenty nine, kind of in the same way that there was the twenty four with the seventeen. Uh, and I believe the Air Force Museum had one uh, early post war, and then it was cut up. It was an accident, I think. It was it was yeah. the boneyard accidentally cut it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, that's that's news to me. It's yeah, it was out. It was out. So the story that I had heard, well, it's the story. It would happen was the Air Force Museum. This goes way back. Had a sort of holding area out at Davis Mothin. I think it was Davis Mothin. Yeah, we Kingdom. still have airframes out there. And yeah. the boneyard folks at the boneyard screwed up. And, oh, okay. That's, and yeah. accidentally cut wow. up the B-32. But they had had a B-32 set aside. Wow. I, I'm pretty sure – I'd have to go back and look to make sure I have the right airframe, but I'm pretty sure that was a B-32. Yeah, I, I think I think there are very few people other than enthusiasts who know that that, that it went operational yeah. in small numbers, but yeah. but nevertheless, you know, it was it was operational. But it does actually have kind of a sub- obscure but significant role in that I kind of misspoke when I said the boxcar was the last combat operation because it was actually a B-32. Um, some of the, the some of the last missions, the last the last fighter kill was a P sixty one. Okay. Yeah, of, war, of, of American victory in World War Two was a P sixty one. I thought there was actually like a B thirty two. B thirty two flew the last the... bombing mission. Maybe okay, is that okay. what, maybe that's what it was. But, okay. but yeah, because it came back kind of shot up and. Yeah. Um, I I interviewed a B thirty two pilot, uh, and I asked him. You know, the airplane was kind of notorious, and I asked him. I said, uh, "What did you think of it?" And he says, "It was pretty awful." <laughs> I says, well, don't you feel bad there isn't one in the museum? And he was like, nope. And he said, uh, when we got the – he goes, when we flew over, uh, we almost didn't make it getting deployed, just getting to the base. We almost didn't make it. We came in on two engines. And he goes, we flew our combat missions. When the war ended, they said, we're going to send you home in that B-32. He says, I went and got a bulldozer and bulldozed my B-32. <laughs> and he goes, just so I didn't have to fly home in that airplane. <laughs> okay, like, well – Oh, my gosh. <laughs> all right. I'll, I guess I'll just defer to that veteran. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He was probably uh, the guy in the scrapyard that went out there. <laughs> well, it's, it's important to preserve things that weren't successful also. <laughs> yeah, so Exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, on that, on that ignominious <laughs> note, uh, I think it's time for us to come to an end. Uh, uh, thanks so much, Jeff, for, for coming out. Um, you know, we're... I mean, we mean that from the bottom of our hearts. I mean, we're huge Air Force Museum fans. It's uh, 
as you said, every single one of your galleries could be a world-class museum unto itself, uh, and it would absolutely stand up on its own. And we we um, we wholeheartedly recommend that everybody listening uh, make the pilgrim make at least one pilgrimage to Dayton in your life, if not one a year <laughs> or more. Um, so with that, um, please keep the reviews coming to uh, the Green Dot. Let us know um, uh, how we're doing and what you'd like to uh, what you'd like to hear on the show um, in the future. Uh, for those of you who have reached out to us and are interested in uh, hearing the show on Spotify, we are working on that. Uh, hopefully, we'll have an answer uh, pretty soon on that. Um, and with that, thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks a lot, Jeff. And we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>